Welcome to Soaring the Sky, Glider Pilots Podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I will be your host. This is episode 30. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training. Since 1969, they provided training from initial private through CFI Glider and entry level through advanced aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. On this episode of the podcast, we head across the Atlantic to the English countryside and talk with John Picard. John Picard used to be a part of the Royal Air Force where he was a aircraft propulsion mechanic. Also, while being in the Royal Air Force, he received training on hypoxia and ejection seat escape procedures. He also was deployed as a guard while being there in Bahrain during the Gulf War and can remember the scud warnings. Years later, John has never lost his bug for aviation and has recently started to learn how to fly gliders. He is only three hours in, but loves everything about soaring. Later on the podcast, we are going to catch up with a previous guest, episode 14, with Clemens Chipek, and he's going to tell us what he's been up to. He is also going to share his adventures flying his diamond distance. Also, we're going to catch up with him about his blog. All of this and more right now on Soaring the Sky. John Picard, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you today. Chuck, thank you ever so much for inviting me. I'm uh, quite excited to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. When did your adventure in aviation get started? I actually started um, being involved in aviation about uh, 1983. I was uh, at school and one of, my co- one of my friends at school said, I'm going to go to something called Air Cadets. Do you want to come along with me? Um, and that night I went away to the, the cadets and I enrolled underage at the time would you believe that they still let me go in and i started starting my interest in aviation there what did you do at the air training corps what did, what did that okay. include okay back in the in the 80s um it wasn't quite as formulated as it is now but we had a really good squadron and we were involved in um we would go and have uh, trips out to uh, rf bases for, for camps and on these camps you get air experience flights normally in aircraft like chipmunks uh, and bulldogs at the time. Um, and then during the um, the winter months, we'd go away to um, day trips to a Pacific airfields and again have, have more flights uh, in chipmunks. At the time I was in, gliding wasn't something that was very much on offer in the area where I was, uh, where I was based in the West Midlands at that time. But I did get a, uh, a number of flights in, in military aircraft. Uh, um, and as a result of that, it sparked my my interest in aviation, and I basically walked straight out of uh, air cadets at the age of 17 and joined the Royal Air Force as a, an aircraft engineering uh, mechanic at the time. Uh, I went away to training and uh, learned how to be a, a propulsion mechanic, then was posted to a place called RF Scampton, which is the, the home of the Red Arrows, who are currently displaying in the United States. Um, and I worked worked there for five years in the line. And I was fortunate enough to get selected to be what was called a, a flyaway engineer. So I would um, go away with a, a pilot for a week uh, in a jet provost or a Tucano, and we'd go to a different air bases, and uh, the, the pilot would go there to teach other um, RAF pilots um, basically how, how to spin, and it was a part of their uh, yearly checks they had to do because um, at the time they had phantoms in the RAF and they weren't too keen on spinning those, so they'd take the jet provost or the Tucanos up there, and we'd do that. And I have to say, my flying skills at that time were very, very limited. I remember flying... Um, an approach to Lucas and the, the pilot with me said, you know, you, you ever go fly the fly, we'll do a radar approach. 
and it was it was abysmal. It, I was left of centre line, right of centre line, too high, too low. I was all over the place. So uh, yeah, good times, but a long time ago now. Yeah, but some good initial training, I'm sure. Yeah, it it really was, and and you don't appreciate those starts you get um, in life and how things lead on until you, until you get, I suppose, to the age I know. You know, I'm considerably older. So um, my um, my time in in the RAF, I decided in the 1990s, early 1990s, um, after becoming a technician, that um, the RAF future for me wasn't as bright as what it had been due to the cutbacks the government had at the time. So I, I left the Air Force and became involved. Uh, well, I didn't come involved. I joined the police service, became a police officer, um, and that's what I've done for the last 25 years. But even so, during this, this t- last 25 years, I haven't lost the bug for aviation. I've... Um, I've continued as a as an engineer at a, a number of airports and a number of volunteer projects just to keep my hand in, really. Um, and also on the aviation side of in the police service as well, being involved in that at times during my career. And that really has led me to coming to the end of my police career and thinking, is that bug still there? I really do want to fly. Um, and I chatted it through my wife. And fortunately, around um, June time this year, I lovely birthday present of um some air experience flights in the glider oh very nice so how was that it was absolutely scary <laughs> <I've> forgotten, <laughs> i'd forgotten how vulnerable you feel um in an air in a, in a light glider uh being towed behind it being towed and bumped around behind an aircraft and and not having control as well and you know having somebody else fly you who was the um because you're in tandem, obviously, in a um, a sphere, and um, it was really <laughs> took a bit of getting used to. But once the first three or four minutes were over, it was amazing how how the change in temperament and the change in age. I don't know what happened or everything, but maybe my learning styles changed over the years, um, and I, I felt like I really took to it and was I'm really hungry to to learn and to learn quickly. Uh, and to get on within the gliding community. Why did you choose gliders overpowered later on in years when you just recently got back into it? For me, it was the purity of flying. Now, this is going to sound, um, I don't want to sound corny or anything like this, but I picked up, uh, I, I like my podcasts, I like aviation podcasts, uh, and I, I listened to a number of pilots, airline pilots, as well as fighter pilots, and they describe pilots who have been gliders have been stick and rudder pilots who've got a lot more skill than they have with powered. It was also a bit of a financial choice as well. The opportunity to glide and to enjoy it without worrying too much about the financial side was greater than that of learning to be a power flight. And I can't see where power flight um, at my age would take me. It wouldn't take me into a new career where I could make the money back from what I've spent on learning to become a commercial pilot, something like that. But I could even go to glide and enjoy gliding and, and maybe as I as I get into it, actually teach and give something back to the to the younger people. Because, you know, I'm not I'm not a natural at it, but I'm just I'm I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. It's not so much going from A to B, but just enjoying the whole experience while you're in the air in a glider. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point actually that I hadn't considered at the beginning is the fact that you are thinking all the time. You can talk about the fact that yeah, you're thinking about landing out and what field and all the rest of it, but you're looking at the weather, 
you're trying to decipher what the weather's like, what, which clouds are going to give you any lift if they are. Are you going to get into some street cloud and get some lift off that? How far back the wind's pushing you when you're in a turn? And you're you're there and you're trying to outsmart everything to keep your you know your 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 glider up in the air and to be safe. So I have to say I enjoy that challenge. So you had mentioned earlier about some of your goals with soaring. So you eventually want to instruct and teach others how to fly. You know, yeah, it is something that I um I've done training qualifications in this job that I'm that I'm in now and, and um in a few weeks time would you believe I'm retiring from this job and I've, I'm going into an engineering background uh, where I'm going to be instructing um, young people in aviation in industry in, in in aircraft design and aircraft engines etc and actually I didn't realize until I recently how much I really enjoy that so to go back into it um, and to give something that I'm passionate about um, the flying side of it is something I really want to get into and to do and I think that's come about because of being a police officer and meeting so many different people from so many different walks of life. A lot of the time, you don't get to see good in people. You only get to see bad. But when you do get to see good and you get to influence people, I've found that to be a real inspiration. Um, and I've bumped in some of the, the young people along, along the way, years later, shall we say, who have actually found me out and come to say thank you. And yeah, I think to have that warm, that warm feeling inside and that smile on your face is something that I want to uh, want to do in the gliding community as well. And it only takes one person to make a change in somebody's life. Yes. Um, you know, we hear that in politicians, we hear that in schools, etc. And it's not always people who you um, you have in academic or in, in your parental side of it as well. So Maybe it's not even the, um, it might not even be from the gliding that, um, you know, somebody comes to the club, wants to learn to glide or, or whatever, but they have a mentor that you get speaking to them about other things in their life or directions or problems, etc. And they feel free to talk to you about. And um, I changed a great deal over the last 25 years. You know, I was a really young, naive man who came out of the Air Force and thought I knew everything. You know, in fact, I knew very little about real life. And um, yeah, some of those experiences now, I'd like to, yeah, pass on to people. Now, backing up a little bit, you had talked about volunteering. You were doing some volunteering, I believe, some volunteering with Cold War jets, right? Yeah, this is a, a really interesting story. Um, Facebook is a, a very powerful tool when it's used correctly. And I'd, I'd got in contact with some of my um, my old sergeant from the, my RAF days, who was my line chief, at, uh, line sergeant at the time. And he was involved with uh, basically keeping a lightning Lightning aircraft, the original, um, not the original P-38 Lightning, but the British Lightning, the English Electric Lightning, um, taxiing and taxiing conditions, a place called Bruntingthorpe in uh, Leicestershire. Well, that's about 30-odd miles away from me. So um, I had a conversation with him about whether, you know, they'd need any more volunteers, any more help. And he politely said no, which was a bit of a, oh, okay. But he said, well, I know a group who really needs some young blood. And when, when you're a man in your 40s at that time and somebody says that to you, it does make you think, young blood, where's this going? Um, and I got involved, <laughs> I got involved in, with um, the Canberra team. So we've got an English electric Canberra. It's owned by uh, by four men who are considerably older than me, but that's they keep going. And so does the aircraft. The aircraft's over 60 years old now. Uh, and we, uh, we fast tax here at open days. And uh, we have a... Um, an ex-RAF squadron leader who comes down and, and, and does that for us. So 
from for the last four years, I've been going down uh, and nursing Avon engines into life, learning new systems about how the hydraulics work and uh, avionics, etc. I mean, I was an aircraft engineer on cameras in the Air Force, but for only for a very limited time. Uh, and it's a very different setup when you can go to a storeroom and pick up parts. Um, when you're dealing with aircraft that are now out of service and you've got no money to repair them, you have to learn to um, be inventive and creative in your solutions to problems. Now, do they have plans to fly these aircraft or are they going to be for museums? What are they doing? Well, at the, currently at the moment, there's a, around about 12 different aircraft, all in fast taxiing condition. And they, they range from things like VC-10s, Comets, Buccaneers, Lightnings, uh, Jet Provosts, um, some Eastern European, uh, some Eastern European jets, a Venom, which is a very early British aircraft. There's no intention to fly them at all. The cost involved in getting them serviced, airworthy, passing the CAA checks. Because here in the UK, since the um, the disaster at Shoreham, where unfortunately people lost their lives in their display, uh, regulations have really been tightened up around aircraft and and their displaying, etc. And through working at Bruntingthorpe, I've picked up some work helping out at uh, a place in Coventry where they have other vintage jets that do actually fly, um, and specifically around um, the the Vampire aircraft. Speaking to the pilots and the owner of that, I wasn't aware of how much money it costs to keep that aircraft going and how much insurance is just to be allowed to go to an air show. And, of course, a lot of air shows are charities, so they don't wish to want to pay the aircraft or to give the aircraft owner any any particular large sums of money to come or to cover their costs, etc. So it, it really is a, a game of passion to keep these aircraft flying, etc. So we won't get anywhere near getting the aircraft at Brundingthorpe flying unless we get a really rich investor. And then, of course, you've got to find people who've got the skills and the time to bring them up to that uh, that level that's required to get them back into the air. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of work. Yeah, you're you're talking years of work. I mean, the aircraft I work on particularly has been on the airfield for 25 years now and not flown. So you can imagine that's going to need a, a full major, I presume, to get that going and uh, NDT checks of, of spars and wing joints, etc., and a lot of replacement parts. And a lot of those replacement parts probably won't even be available anymore. You, you're going to have to get them specially made up to specific standards, etc. So, yes. Even in the UK, we had the, the Vulcan to the Sky project and the Vulcan flew for a number of years. But even that aircraft now is ground running only. And that's due to lots of engineering issues they had. If I can back up just a little bit more. Now, back when you were with the RAF, you did some training uh, in hypoxia. Yeah, I um, as part of the role of being a um, an engineer flying, etc., uh, we had to go and do the, some of the pilot training um, and that involved going to the um, the compression chamber and going through the effects of hypoxia and how that affects your body and how to recognise it in yourself and in others. And I've also had some experience of this recently because I, I went on a trip to uh, Everest Base Camp and around some of the passes in Nepal, etc. So I've, while it's not been hypoxic as such, I've been at, walking up to 16,000, 17,000 feet myself in the last year and seeing those effects is um is very interesting um and the training that the rf gave us was was top notch at that time i mean you've probably seen television programs about it and watched youtube videos uh, and a lot of it's very true you you do very silly things or you giggle at things or you'll go off in one direction 
Uh, and the worst part about it is, is that as the lack of oxygen for myself came on, it just felt so nice and you just felt so lovely and so calm and you don't appreciate what it's doing to your body. Yeah. And even in gliders, of course, because, you know, if you get in some good wave and you get up there in those altitudes, there's definitely something you have to recognize and also have oxygen if you're going to go to those altitudes because you, right. you, know, you don't want to get in that situation. No, you don't. And you have to remember also that, you know, the time you're taking up to get to those altitudes you know, it can be quite rapid in some of the some of the really good thermals. It's not like you're you're walking up as I did earlier, engineering wise. So that that shock on the body, as it were, and the lack of oxygen to the brain, it affects your decision making processes. Um, yes, you might be able to recognise it in in eyesight and blurring around the edges or um, or the colour of your fingertips or something like that. But it's it's those decisions you make, and and when you're soloing or or even with somebody in a glider, you know, you have to make some very wise decisions based on information. If you, you have to be able to process the information. So, yes, you're right. The, the advantage of having oxygen on board and, and using that oxygen, because obviously some not everybody will, will do, um, is very important. Yeah, you know, you get in a thermal and you get excited and you're going up, you're going up. And, yeah, it, it can happen fast. If you're just concentrating on the thermal and how much altitude you're getting rather than lack of oxygen. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the percentage of the um, of the air pressure, etc., reduces up there, um, and you'll you'll feel those effects. And uh, I've been hearing about people who've, who've tried um, who've had that effect on them, and they've they've opened the DV window and try and get more air in, etc., just to get them out of feeling that that nauseous or that that uh, sleepy state. So, on your glider training, what are you flying now? What aircraft? Well, I've been trying to um to, to push myself along a little bit actually i've um i've flown the the uh, the twin astia as, you, uh, as we call it over here which is a, a two-seat um fiberglass glider um i've also taken quite a bit of time actually in a um in a power glider in a uh, sf25 and that, the reason for that is because we've had a very indifferent summer here in the uk and would you believe when you're at work, it's normally really good soaring weather. And when you're not at work and at the club, it's not always good soaring weather. I know that's right. <laughs> yeah. So even with aero toes, uh, you're not always you're not always getting into any thermals or any, any street lift or anything like that. So using the power glide, it's given me the opportunity to practice um, uh, some of the routines uh, in relation to, to turning and to glide. Uh, I was going to say to gliding, but to straight and level, and the use of air brakes and demonstrations, uh, and especially around the stalling and spiral turns, and then be able to get back up to height and then repractice, etc. If I was um, soaring without the motor, you'd be up and down, up and down, not always being able to guarantee um, getting any decent height to practice those things. Yeah, lots of sled rides for sure. Yeah, I mean, I was, I'm, I've actually got my uh, my logbook open in front of me, and obviously it's not going to be a great big logbook like other people have. But you know, I had a I had a four minute sled ride, as you call it, uh, back in July. Um, but then you say that even on a training uh, flight a couple of Saturdays ago with an instructor, uh, and we were doing stall demos that day, I had 46 minutes off an aero toe up to 2,000. And we found we lost a thousand feet and we found a thousand feet. And I was really pleased that the instructor allowed me. I, I just asked, says, well, can I have a go at keeping it in the thermal lane? You know, I felt felt something when I'm flying. Can I have a go with it here? And they were they were good enough to say, yeah, yeah, go on, then you do it. See, you have a go. And that gives you a heck of a lot of confidence that because 
we're learning a program about how to fly a glider, how to trim, how to turn, etc. But there's not a lot in the program that says teaching you how to soar and how to feel that um, the effects as you hit a thermal. So how was that? How did it For myself, it was the fact that it was that little change in air pressure, the little popping of a wing up on one side or the other, and that feel, and, and having the meter, the varimeter going beep, 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 uh, at that time as well, that helps. And then having the confidence to look around you then start your uh, your banking turn and try and nibble at, at that thermal where you are and take into, a fact, into account the fact that the wind as well that's blowing you, sorry, is that blowing you into the thermal, out of the thermal, um, having the confidence to come out of that turn slightly and then go back into it um, and, and getting the most out of it. Uh, and it was challenging and it's hard work, but getting that 1,000 feet back on the, um, the altimeter was, was really worth it. Yeah, it feels good for sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, I've been watching YouTube videos uh, and footage, et cetera, and of all different sorts of things around gliding because I thought I want to broaden my horizons and, and, and learn about this. And when I see some of the people out in uh, Arizona or places like that and look at the altitudes they're getting, we're not hitting anywhere near that. You know, about 3,000, uh, 3,500 feet is my limit at the moment. But even so, you know, at that height, in a little fiberglass uh, aircraft looking down on the patchwork countryside of, of the UK and, and the fields and the, the odd motorway and, and railway line going through, you do get that sense of this is so nice, this is so peaceful and, and how far you can see in and uh, what's around you, etc. Yeah, I agree with you. The view is amazing. You know, you've got that, you, you I wouldn't say a 360, but you've definitely got a 270 view. And, and being the fact I'm, I'm gliding 25 miles away from my house, while I can't see my house, I can see features and think, I don't live far away from that. I can see that tower from here. Or I can see, for example, we, some of the power station. We've got a power station that's not, not used, but it's still a feature because it's on the landscape. We've got a, a large hill that just uh, was left there by the Ice Age retreating, you know, hard piece of rock, etc. And things like that, it, it really makes you think and makes you look around and, and search for other, um, a bit of research around, around the local area as well. So... That, that's really interesting. And I heard somebody talking at the club about the different types of soil and how the different types of soil in the area can affect your soaring performance and what thermals you get. Um, and again, that just goes down to thinking of this is not a simple thing to do. There's a lot involved. Yeah, the more you find out about how much is involved, yeah, it's, it's definitely just everything, the weather, the landscape, all that. And the other thing is, is that there's so much to learn on the ground as well. Not only is the the um, the DIing of the aircraft and, and the looking after the aircraft, but what there also is is the um, the helping with the launches, the retrievals, the the, um, the whether that be a, a winch launch or whether that be a um, another form of launch. There's so much to take on board. Now, are you doing any winch launches at your club? Yes, we've got a um, two winches uh, two winches operating at, at the club, and uh, I am told, although I haven't. Um, I haven't seen it yet. That they, they also have a uh, one. Of the international companies will occasionally come down and, and and bring one of their test winches that they want to put through its paces, etc. So they're, they're quite fortunate in that respect. You know the altitudes they're getting off their launches. Yeah, normally get a thousand. Anything between eight eight hundred and a thousand feet. Okay, so it's, yeah. it can be a pretty quick flight if you don't get anything. Exactly. Yeah, that hence my four minute flight. Yeah. yeah. So if if you if you're not 
you know, hitting the firm or hitting something that's going to push you up here, you're lacking really. I mean, I was I was down at the club this weekend, and because a lot of it's done by volunteers, there's so many people who put a lot of hard work and effort into uh, keeping that club running, and I, I don't think it's always appreciated just how much effort it does take. You know that they were talking about the, the club's got 60 acres of of land that needs mowing, for example. You know that's an eight to nine hour job just to mow the grass. Oh yeah, absolutely. It takes a lot to keep a club going. You know. Yes. Um, and but I'm finding that because of that, the atmosphere is so lovely, and the and the people want to help you. They want to talk to you, um, and they want to see you progress. And and that's the great thing about it. And you know, usually a lot of people around you have so much knowledge and so much experience that you can continually learn, even when you're on the ground. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we there's, there's all sorts of instrumentation put into gliders, etc. And just going through what's fitted and why it's fitted, you know, we've got some of um, the, the what well, I think it's called flare, actually, it's for, and the anti-collision sort of stuff fitted. Um, and I was reading about that this week, which is another thing that's that's really interesting. Um, you know, and um, sorry, it's called flam. My apologies. So that, that gives you an, an insight into how far away of aircraft might be by the types of bleep you get, etc. Yeah, that extra extra safety device. Yeah, because we're talking, you know, earlier about the Air Force and whatever. Our, our club is about 25 miles away from a, a an RAF station that has what air experience flights again, which was something I was doing 36 odd years ago. So we do see them come over our area. We see them come very close to the um, the airfield, etc. So you, you need to have your wits about. You need to be seeing things. And of course, one of the um, the things it does take a while to get your eye in. To be doing doing those lookouts. Yeah, that's one of the questions I usually ask on the podcast is, you know, how to be a safer pilot and yeah, keeping your eyes open constantly and constantly scanning the skies is very important, especially if you're in a busy near a busy airspace. Oh gosh, exactly. We're not that far also away from the the main helicopter uh, training base for the uh, the joint services in the, in the UK, and of course helicopters tend to operate at low levels. Uh, around the sort of heights that we're at as, as gliders. So tuning into their, their frequency and just picking up uh, where they are, et cetera, and what, what directions they're heading on it is, is very handy. Um, well, one of the lessons that I have taken on board quite, I was going to say quite a lot, but that's probably not the best word, use of English, but is around your lookouts and, and how you look and where you look, et cetera. It's no good just having your head on a swivel, as, as the old fighter pilot movies would show you and all that sort of stuff, you know. It's being precise and sectioning off which areas you're looking at and then coming back and going away, etc. And I found that to be really beneficial because at first I couldn't see anything. I wasn't picking anything up until I actually learned how to look in sections. Um, and that's been very good. Now, I know you haven't had very many flights, but was there a particular time or a particular flight that just stood out that was a good experience? Yeah, I, I really, really got a lot out of having the aircraft, um, we, we had an aerotow up to 2,000 feet. It wasn't a particularly great day for soaring, but it was good enough with the winds and whatever that we, we managed to get 40 minutes um, out over the countryside, which, which was really great because the, the visibility was fantastic. But for me, it was the fact of combining stuff you practiced all together. So, for example, we'd done straight and level, we'd done turning, We've done the use of the um, the trim. We've done the use of the air brake, etc. 
but it was that combination of putting all that together for the right reasons and then the instructor um, saying to you or, or, or saying, oh, I have control and then putting us into a stall and, you know, you get out of that, um, that sort of stuff. Having that confidence in you as an, the instructor, having that confidence in you to allow you that opportunity to demonstrate that you had taken things on board uh, and we're now being being able to use those in a practical sense rather than just an academic sense or just in a one solo or one one dimension, as it were. John, I appreciate you joining me today for the podcast. It's been really great talking to you. Chuck, I've really enjoyed it as well. I felt at times, uh, you know, I'd like to like to be more up on up to date or up on the knowledge of it, how it all works. But I am really new to this, and I'm not just saying this to to ring your bells, as it were. But your podcast has been really, really good for me. It's made me go away. It's made me research things. It's made me look at things in a different light. And I, I think anything you can get around aviation, uh, and particularly around soaring at the moment for for myself is a great benefit. Thank you, John. And speaking of information and soaking things up and getting everything you can out of soaring, our next guest we talked to, checking back with Clemens Chipek. He has a blog, Chess in the Air. He's going to tell us a little bit about that and about what he's been doing in the past few months. Clemens, great to have you back on the podcast. Yeah, hi, Jack. Uh, Glad to be back. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, I guess the last time you were on the podcast, it was back uh, end of March or April. Yeah, I think that's probably about right. Yeah, just the beginning of the season. So how is everything going? Yeah, I mean, we had, uh, from a soaring standpoint, we had a, we had a great, uh, we had a great season. I mean, the, the beginning of the year weather-wise wasn't, wasn't all that great. We had, there was a lot of snow this year in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, all that snow in the mountains uh, caused a lot of humidity in the air as the as the sun came out uh, in in the spring, and so we had a lot of uh, a lot of more thunderstorms and uh, than we would usually have, uh, especially in the in the May June time frame. Uh, but it it's the as the season progressed, it got better and better, and actually the the, the August was particularly good, and uh, even into early September was. Uh, was phenomenal. So we overall, I'm quite happy with the season. Yeah. Now, how has your blog been going? We had talked about that back when you're on the uh, episode 14. You have a blog called Chess in the Air, and I believe the latest blog I was checking out was your Diamond Distance blog. How did that go? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we we basically yeah, I keep the blog the, uh, for the same reasons I had it before, which is basically as a means to learn and to record my own lessons that I learned when I fly uh, and then uh, to reflect on it and uh, think about what I can, you know, what I've done well and what I could do better uh, next time. And uh, I found that there's quite a few people who appreciate that and uh, who uh, read it and, uh, and, and find something for them as well. So uh, that makes me makes me, uh, you know, keep going because uh, it's not only for me now, it's, it's also for others. So I, I think that's great. Uh, yeah, no, the diamond. This I I did get my diamond distance uh, in in August. So this is as I said when the when uh, you could finally fly uh, full days and not get be too constrained by by thunderstorms at the end of the day. Uh, you know, I, I made six attempts this year. I went out actually to the to a soaring camp in Nephi early in the year, and uh, I tried twice at the Nephi camp and uh, <laughs> I didn't. 
didn't get it at the Nephi camp, and uh, then in Bold, back in Boulder, uh, I made another four attempts, and uh, on the on the six one, uh, finally, uh, it worked out, uh, where everything came together. You had the you had the long soaring day. You had the high uh, ceiling. You didn't have too much wind, because uh, that can uh, really mess the thermals up. And um, uh, as I said, high cloud bases, strong thermals, uh, and uh, so a very good day. And uh, it, it just all it just all came together, and it was also fun because it was my first flight that was uh, considerably beyond the uh, the continental divide to the west, uh, and the, this is a this is a big deal for uh, people who learn to fly out of Boulder. Is is you have this huge mountain range which is uh, just to the uh, to the west of the airfield. And um, you know, if you once you get over that mountain range, you're totally committed uh, to to the other side and uh, and to the conditions on the other side, and also being able to come back. I mean, the mountains you have to cross back over are 12 to 14,000 feet high, so you you basically have to have good conditions to be able to to come back. Otherwise, you're landing at an airport uh, somewhere somewhere out on the other side. Can you take me through that flight from start to finish and how that went? Your diamond distance. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I mean the I mean basically uh, got a good start uh, early in the morning, relatively early in the morning, and uh, I had a first turn point. So if you in Boulder, I don't know if you know the geography uh, for every anyone listening. If you think of the geography along the in in Colorado, uh, after my early start, uh, I had a first turn point uh, near Pikes Peak. Uh, just uh, this is close to Colorado Springs. It's about a hundred. Not quite 100 miles, maybe 80 miles uh, to the south of Boulder, uh, and and there's usually in the morning there's often a convergence line, and as it was, there was a convergence as well. So it was forecast. It wasn't particularly strong that day, but it, it was definitely there and and recognizable. Uh, there were it was marked too by uh, by curtain clouds, uh, which is usual. And uh, so uh, and then I had a friend of mine was who was flying as well the same day, and we had not rearranged this we just ended up flying the first leg basically together because he was trying to get to the top of pikes peak which he hadn't been to before uh, so we ended up flying the first leg uh, pretty much together which was a lot of fun because in team flying you can basically watch the other plane uh, fly next to you a few hundred uh, yards away and uh, you can see who's got the better line and you can see who's climbing and who's not climbing and then you basically adjust the course based on the other plane uh, it's basically just like uh, flying with the birds. Uh, in this case, you're flying with another plane, and you're watching the other plane, and you see, you know, how you are doing relative to them, and then you can adjust the course, or they can adjust the course accordingly. So, so that was a lot of fun getting to the first turn point. Uh, went pretty quick. Uh, made the first turn point, and then uh, the second turn point uh, that I had, that, that was the one that was pretty far to the west, uh, probably about uh, 60, 70 miles west of the Continental Divide. So uh, first of all, I had to find a good place uh, to cross it. Uh, again, you have to get pretty high up uh, so you can cross over. Um, and then the, uh, and then at the morning, it was still relatively early and the cloud bases weren't particularly high. So we still had, and so when I say not particularly high, they were around 16,500. 
which for Boulder is not very high, especially if you think of the mountains, uh, as I said, between 12 and 14,000 feet. If you're at 16,000 feet and uh, the mountains are at 14,000, uh, you're not very high above the ground and the terrain is, is unlandable. So you have to be very thoughtful and mindful as to where and how you cross it. And so my first attempt, which was trying to follow more or less the, uh, the straight line towards the turn point, uh, that didn't really work out. So I got stuck on the uh, west side of, of Mount Evans and I was looking down into, uh, you know, into the valleys beyond. So to um, Silverthorne, Dillon Reservoir, uh, towards Kremlin. And you could see, you could even see all the way to Kremlin from, from that point. And Kremlin was just a little uh, to the east of my turn point. So I had to go beyond Kremlin. But, but it, it was just, it just uh, wasn't comfortable. So I did, not, uh, I did not make the jump at that point. And I almost gave up at that point. On the task, I'm like, I'm maybe 16,500 uh, cloud bases just isn't high enough to go out west. Uh, so I detoured around Mount Evans, uh, and that's a big mountain, right? It's one of the one of the 14ers in Colorado. Uh, detoured around Mount Evans, uh, uh, flew back to the Front Range, uh, followed the Front Range up north, and then I spotted a cloud street that was going basically, you know, a little south of my course, but but uh, more or less in the right direction. And I and also the 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 base is lifted a little bit, and that's what what happens usually during the day, pretty much at any soaring site, is that in the afternoon you get higher cloud bases. So, cloud bases went up to above seventeen thousand, or just to about seventeen thousand, um, and that was high enough. So I felt comfortable at that point with a cloud street uh, going out, and I'm like, okay, I'm I'm making the jump. Uh, so I, I did fly over the divide and uh, kept going in, in westerly direction. I was just following the clouds. It was pretty straightforward. Uh, I mean, not all of them worked, but you could. Uh, and I was, you know, because I was flying over new terrain that I wasn't super familiar with. I mean, I knew I had researched my land outfields and I knew work to land and, and uh, I knew the airports. Uh, obviously, in the area, there's, there's a few airports on that on that way. It's one of the... Uh, one of the more uh, accessible places uh, in, uh, in in Colorado uh, from a land out standpoint. Um, so I followed uh, the route out west under the clouds uh, and uh, basically made it just uh, just beyond Kremlin when the clouds stopped. And I had about another 10 miles to go, uh, 10 to 15 miles maybe to go to the first turn point. And, and then hardly any clouds. So I tried to get as high as I possibly could under the last one uh, and then made the jump into the blue, flew out into the blue, uh, made the turn point. The turn point was at a, a place called Toponas and I was expecting a little a village there and uh, there wasn't really a village. Uh, there, there oftentimes isn't, uh, even if it's called a village. Uh, there's, there was just, if I could make it out, there was basically a, a street crossing and, a, and, a, and, and one or two houses. Uh, so that was, that, was the, that was my turn point. So I made the turn point, um, flew back towards the clouds, uh, uh, and then it, it actually started. See, I lost quite a bit of altitude in that, in that blue uh, gap, but um, uh, made it back uh, fairly easily once I got back to, to the clouds. And, and uh, they actually started to, to really perform pretty well. So it was now mid to late afternoon. Uh, and this is, this, was, this is oftentimes the strongest part of the soaring day. And, and this was no exception. So uh, there were a few clouds that just, uh, you know, great, great lift, uh, great um, uh, climbs. So up to 
I think 10, 12 knot average, uh, which isn't unusual for for Colorado. It's on a good day you 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 can find that, and there were there were a few of those in a row. Um, so that the the way out took a took a while, especially also it was into a headwind. The way back uh, went pretty quick because now I had the the wind in my back and I had very strong uh, very strong climbs. So. I made it quickly uh, back to the divide. And then uh, I had another uh, turn point uh, to the south and one to the north. But it, it was getting a little late in the day, uh, even though, you know, I had made good time on the on the way back. Uh, and then I was very fortunate that I that there was a, a stronger convergence had uh, had developed and uh, along the divide. And I was basically able to simply follow the, the convergence and it it perfectly aligned <laughs> this was a bit of luck uh, i mean i obviously had read the weather forecast uh, and i knew more or less what to expect when i picked the turn points that i picked um, but it, it worked out you know almost perfectly so um, the convergence took me in straight flight uh, to my third turn point and from the third turn point took me to my finished turn point which was uh, about uh, 20 25 miles north of the airfield so I've uh, just in straight flight made it to the finish turn point and uh, had made my had made my 500k um, and uh, and then could just basically just climb back uh, just uh, glide back to the airfield. So uh, it was a was a great was a great flight. Uh, I was happy to get Very it on nice. my six on my six attempt. Yeah. What were you flying, Clemens? that task. yeah and no, i was flying a discus uh, and uh just a discus cs so this is the uh, uh it's the first generation uh discus uh, uh so not the current model but it's it's still you know it's a very strong uh plane um it still performs very nicely so it's a it's about a glide ratio of 40 to 1 and you can typically yeah, fly, I, I, I would fly dry that day. Uh, I have not actually flown with water, so this is my, my next step is fly with ballast. But I flew it dry, and at dry, you basically fly it between 70 and 80 knots on, on good days for the most part between the clouds. Uh, that's that's a good, that's a, those are good speeds. Now, how long was that flight? What what did it take you? Uh, the total flight ended up being quite long. It uh, was over seven hours. And uh, the reason it took so long is because I, I spent so much time between my first turn point and my second turn point on the attempt to cross the divide. I probably lost at least an hour and a half on that uh, on that stretch trying to, to cross the divide. So if you would look at my second leg on that flight, I think the average speed on that second leg is, is very slow. I would be surprised. I, I don't know, actually off the top of my head, but I would expect it's probably around uh, 40 miles or less. Uh, and that's that's very slow. Um, and then coming back from the second turn point to the third and then to the finish, uh, that was much, much faster. I mean, that was more than twice as fast for sure. But that's why it took so long. And that's why it also why it got pretty late in the day uh, at the end, uh, because uh, I just had wasted so much time between uh, the the first and the second turn point. Yeah, but you salvaged the flight because it sounds like you know you're starting to get low and it's are you going to get across? You know you're starting to question if you're going to get across or not. So you slowed down, but you're able to do it. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that's what makes it fun, right? If it if if it weren't if it had been all all easy, it probably wouldn't be as memorable as it as it is when it when you had some challenges along the way. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah, and then we had we had an awesome weekend, uh, like on 
on Feb- I haven't written about this on, on the blog, but on, on September 2, we had probably the strongest soaring day of the year, but not even of the year. I would expect this probably was the strongest soaring day in a few years. It was just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and we had, you know, if you look at the, the flights out of Boulder, we had, uh, you know, the longest flight out of Boulder was flown that day with by Pecha Bogdanovich, who is one of our top uh, cross-country pilots. Uh, he usually only comes out when there's a chance of getting 1,000 K. And he flew 1,272 kilometers that day. And, wow. Uh, yeah, at an average speed of just under 100 miles an hour. So, so you can you can imagine how strong that day was, and uh, you know that included a triangle of more than 800 kilometers. So this wasn't just going yo-yo straight up and down uh, a, a convergence line, uh, which is the you know the probably the easiest way. I mean, there's no easy way to get a thousand k, but that is probably the easiest way to get a thousand k. But he, you know, this was an amazing flight, and you had ten pilots out of 10 pilots flying out of Boulder who flew over 500 kilometers that day. Uh, So it was a phenomenal day. Uh, I got, I got 700 uh, roughly, oh, sorry, 600 uh, kilometers um, at the, but I could have, could have gone much longer. Unfortunately, my, my battery, my batteries uh, died during my, you know, as I was, as I was heading south. And uh, and I don't want to fly without uh, without a transponder and without the flarm along the front range uh, because there's so much air traffic coming over the continental divide uh, into Denver, yeah. and so you you don't want to fly without uh, without uh, safeguards. So uh, and no, safety first. Yeah, absolutely. So, but it was still. I mean, this was phenomenal. It was just you could. Basically, all across Colorado, you could go. The cloud bases were over 20,000 feet. Most of the climbs were around 10 knots. Uh, you could go in any direction. There was no overdevelopment. There was no rain showers. There was no verga. There were no thunderstorms. There was hardly any wind. <laughs> it was just, I mean, it was, if you could, you know, if you could design a day uh, in a, you know, uh, you would basically, if you could design your own weather, that's the way you would design the weather. That's how it was. Yeah, those are days you dream about having. You know, you don't you don't rarely see them, but man, you dream about those days for sure. Yeah, you rarely see them, and, uh, and but when they show up, gosh, they're phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Now this was this was spectacular, absolutely spectacular. And I almost made it to Nebraska, so I tried actually at a at a turn point. I tried. I had a task set for myself. And I tried to go uh, to Nebraska, uh, but uh, but that's the only area where you could where the, where the you know where there was basically no clouds. And again, I tried to go into the blue and see if I could climb uh, somewhere in the blue, but there wasn't there, there weren't any climbs in the blue, so uh, I turned around. But and uh, you know, as I said, all across Colorado, you could go pretty much anywhere. Well, it sounds like you've had a great year for soaring for sure. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and you know, good, the good thing is, uh, you know, everything safe, and there's uh, you know nothing nothing damaged. Uh, I think everyone in Boulder um, uh, is, was flying safely uh, the whole year, so uh, it's always uh, it's always a good thing. A lot of good flights. So we had we had we had uh, you know we at the beginning of the year also as a club we bought a second discus, and we weren't sure how that would go. So now we have to this guy and both of them are in the air a lot even you know the last year we had a record with the the one discus we had which prompted us to buy a second one 
Uh, and then this year, even though the weather wasn't perfect, the one that we had uh, already from last year flew more hours than it did last year. And last year was a record. So, uh, and then the, the the second one that we bought, uh, that is, uh, you know, that got uh, a lot of hours as well. So, I think we made made a right decision as a club, and uh, we're in a we're in a great position. Um, here for club members uh, to to fly great ships across uh, awesome terrain in, in in great conditions. Yeah, what a, what a good time to do it too, being the year that you've had. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we will definitely stay updated on your blog. It sounds like you've got an interesting one that you've given us kind of a sneak peek into. So we'll definitely check that out. Chess in the air, right? Yeah, chessintheair.com. Yeah, like yeah, you know, playing chess. In the air, that's what we do when we go soaring. Uh, we always have to play a game uh, with Mother Nature, right? Uh, it's you basically think of the wind and the terrain and the sun and the, uh, you know how it how it all works together and where you find the lift lines and that's uh, and then you you try and make the the right moves. That's that's how you progress when you try and go cross country. So that's that's what it is. That's right. Clemens, thanks for catching up with us. It's been great to talk to you again. Yeah, well, thank you, Jack. I mean, it's great to be on the on the on, on the air again, and I think you know you, you're doing a great job with this uh, podcast. I mean, it's it's been great. I've listened to all of the episodes. I think maybe not the last one yet, uh, but everyone but the last one. And uh, there's there's great learnings from different people uh, that are on. There's lots of variety, and uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm I'm having a blast myself, and I'm learning a lot. So it's, you guys yeah. have been making it easy for me. <laughs> That's good. It's always great to catch up with our guests who have been on the podcast previously and find out what they've been up to. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Soaring the Sky. I greatly appreciate you hanging out with us today and appreciate you listening to all the podcasts, all the episodes. And if you haven't listened to all of them, they are available on our website. That's SoaringTheSky.com. You can find all the episodes there. You can find our guest pilot page where you can see our guest pilots we've had on, some pictures of them. Also, while you're online, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. And both of those, you can find it at Soaring the Sky Podcast. And as always, ssa.org. It is a great place for you to get more information about soaring and where you can take your first discovery flight right there, ssa.org. Have a great one. Hope to have you back here next time for another great guest right here on Soaring the Skies.